This is episode 313 with running coach and host of the Running Explained podcast, Elizabeth Scott. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the goal of this show, strengthrunning.com, and our YouTube channel is to help you better understand the process of improvement. Because when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. If you're new here, welcome. I'm the head coach of Strength Running, formerly a 239 marathoner and a monthly columnist for Trail Runner Magazine. On this podcast, I share my insights on the sport and speak with the world's smartest subject matter experts to help you improve. I'm happy to connect anytime, so feel free to send me an email or you can send me a message on Instagram or YouTube. Now, I want to thank our partners who support the show. They're offering you some great discounts, which I hope that you'll take advantage of. And both of these companies offer products that I use on a near daily basis. First, is Element, a delicious, sugar-free, high-sodium electrolyte mix. It's perfect for endurance runners who are sweating a lot, drinking a lot of water, and because of that, can be susceptible to electrolyte imbalances. My favorite flavor is watermelon salt, but citrus salt is also a banger. You didn't hear it from me, but these can also be used to make a very tasty sugar-free margarita, if that's what you're into, or the next morning to help you feel better if you've had too many of those margaritas. Now, electrolytes play a key role in helping you avoid dehydration, dizziness, cramps, and tiredness, especially after long runs or workouts in the summer weather. And Element is also used by the military, by law enforcement, professional sports teams, and they're the official hydration partner of Team USA Weightlifting. Now you can get a free sample pack with any purchase at drinklmnt.com slash Strength running, and they'll let you try every flavor before you commit. That's drinklmnt.com slash strength running for your free sample pack. We're also supported by AG1, the best in class greens superfood mix. I try to have one serving of AG1 daily because it's my one stop shop for probiotics, vitamins and minerals, greens, prebiotics, and whole food sourced micronutrients. There's also micronutrients like ashwagandha, which is an adaptogen that helps you handle stress in a more productive way. There's also a lot of anecdotal evidence that ashwagandha helps you during periods of high training load, likely by allowing you to recover and adapt to those stresses even better. AG1 helps support gut health, the immune system, and it provides a nice shot of energy, especially if you take it in the early afternoon like I do. It's recommended by professional athletes and has over 7,000 positive reviews. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system, and do so conveniently with one scoop of AG1. They're making it super easy by giving you a free one-year supply of immune system-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs. All you have to do is visit drinkag1.com Jason to pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. That's drinkag1.com slash Jason to claim your free goodies. Joining me today is Elizabeth Scott, host of the Running Explained podcast, which is usually a top three running podcast in the United States. Elizabeth is a magnetic host and loves going deep on the science of training. She has coaching certifications from USA Track and Field, Roadrunners Club of America, and the United Endurance Sports Coaching Academy. 
This episode is all about workouts, what they are, how they're structured, why purpose and intentionality with your workouts is critical, pace versus effort, and a lot more. I also want to thank my Twitter followers for submitting most of these questions. This episode couldn't have come together without your help. And now, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Elizabeth Scott. Hey, Elizabeth, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Jason. Super excited to be here again. Yeah, we're doing a really fun episode today on all kinds of workouts, all the faster workouts that we can do as endurance runners. I thought it, was, it would be a really good opportunity just to talk pretty high level about what workouts are, how to execute them, the types of workouts that runners can do. And I've also pulled all of these questions from our audience. So this is very much a listener-driven episode. So uh, all these questions are, are not actually from me, but from our listeners. I am really excited about this. I mean, I spend so much time talking about easy running, and it's the backbone of your running. It's the foundation of your running. But workouts is where the magic really does happen. And there's so much nuance and detail, and it depends to workouts for runners. This is I'm really excited to talk about this. Maybe we should start with the most basic question of all. When us running coaches say the word workout, what do we actually mean? Because it's it's actually different than what, you know, your average gym goer or, or fitness kind of oriented person means when they say the word workout. So in your mind, when you hear a running coach say, hey, we're going to run a workout today, what does that mean? Great question and a really good place to start. And this is really confusing for a lot of people who are entering into the world of higher level training or specific running training, because in their mind, running is a workout. When you're running, you are going for a workout. But in the running parlance, the running lingo, a workout is a very specific type of run that includes intentional, structured or unstructured, faster running, right? So we talk about the majority of your running should be easy effort running. A workout is stuff that isn't the easy stuff, right? This is the stuff we're talking about, race pace work or track workouts or progression runs. And there are a bunch of different types of workouts, but essentially a workout is an intentionally scheduled and structured day of moderate and or high intensity running that serves a purpose in your training to move you towards the goal that you're working towards. So that means the word workout is quite versatile. It really could be anything from 10 miles at gold marathon pace to 10 by 200 meters at your 800 meter race pace. This is really any type of structured fast workout, even if that fast workout is a fairly unstructured fartlek session where, where you are literally running fast from mailbox to tree to driveway, you know, to the light post, it could almost be an unstructured workout. But as long as we're running some type of faster pace within the session, we can probably say that this is a workout. Yes. And I think that, you know, like you said, structured or unstructured, I think the key word here is intentional faster running. Because we know a lot of recreational runners end up running in this kind of moderate, moderate high intensity zone in a lot of days. They're running in moderate intensity zones when they should be running in their easy effort zones on days that are supposed to be in their easy effort zones. And so those are not workouts. Those are easy runs executed incorrectly. A workout is supposed to be in a moderate or higher intensity zone. And from there, you probably have 
a billion different permutations of how the workout might actually be written. But the whole point is that it is, you're doing it on purpose. It is intentional. I really love that word intentional when it comes to workouts. I think I've always relied on the word structured, but now that I'm uh, a little bit wiser in my older years, I think I'm going to transition more to using the word intentional. So yes, we've been sort of contrasting workouts with our easy running. Most of us has, have heard of the 80-20 rule. 80% of our mileage should be at a lower intensity and 20% can be at one of these more intentional, faster paces. Um, when we structure these workouts, how many workouts should we run per week? And obviously this is going to depend on what we're training for and who we are as a runner. But one of our questions comes from Erica and, and she's curious how many workouts sh per week she should run if she's marathon training. Ooh, good question. So I will start this by saying anywhere from zero to three, <laughs> which is a huge <laughs> okay. range. Um, so you have to look at where you are in your grand, the grand scheme of your running journey and what the purpose and kind of goal is for the specific training cycle that you're in. So while 80-20 is a really good guideline, right, roughly 80% of your volume should be in your easy effort zone, roughly 20% should be in a higher intensity zone. This is not true for every runner and nor is it true for every phase of training that you might be in. Um, and so, for example, talk about the beginning of a marathon training cycle or marathon training for a first time, relatively low volume novice marathoner, right? If you're starting from the 15 to 20 mile per week range, I can tell you that your marathon training cycle will have precisely zero days of structured faster training unless I'm working with you one-on-one -on -one and we deem it appropriate that we could throw in some workouts, right? Because the goal of you in that specific, that runner in this situation, the goal is simply to build endurance to be able to complete the marathon. Contrasting that with somebody who's run multiple marathons or has been training at relatively high volume for a while, maybe you're starting coming into your cycle at 40 to 50 miles per week, you're probably going to have two workouts per week, maybe progressing to three workouts per week in the final phase of your training when actually we are kind of breaking the rule. It's a guideline, not a rule of having slightly more of your training be in that moderate intensity zone closer to your race day. Um, but I would say, generally speaking, most runners are going to have between one and two days of intentionally harder or faster running per week if they are running, you know, between four and six days per week. Yeah. And I would also add that, you know, with my background running in college, even then at that level, running fast three days per week was a challenge, especially when you're doing all the other things in your training that you have to be doing, you know, everything from your long run, which is a stressful run, even though it's not technically a workout, because most of the time you're not usually doing any kind of structured running in there. Although for a marathon or doing some goal pace running is quite common, then we can maybe classify that long run also as a workout. But generally speaking, I'm usually more cautious about three workouts per week. It's very advanced. You really have to know your body and the injury risk is just going to be a lot higher. So for anyone thinking about three workouts per week, uh, just be a little bit more cautious. Just be really honest with yourself about where you are and what you're ready for, because that is a more aggressive schedule of, of workouts during the week. Yeah. And I'll say that's kind of like the maximum, right? So, you know, if somebody came to me and they're running 
20 miles per week. And even let's say they want to train for a shorter distance. They want to run a really fast 10K. They would still limit me that in that one to two workouts per week range. Three workouts per week, like you said, super high level, somebody who can handle a ton of volume. They're probably running at least five to six days per week and have been for a long, long time. And even then, three workouts per week would be very cycle specific for them and that that would not be three workouts every week of their entire training cycle. It might be three workouts in the final few weeks of their training. Like it all has to fit together. And even then we know masters runners do better with fewer high intensity sessions per week. So, right. So there is a lot of balance here. So for all you runners who are thinking that more harder running is always going to be better, check yourself. That is not the case. And also too, if you're running three workouts per week, you probably have one of those workouts being you know, what I'll call a secondary workout is just not going to be nearly as hard as other workouts. You know, you might have a midweek run as a marathoner where you might do four to six miles at goal marathon pace. Now, that's actually not a very challenging workout, especially if, you know, you're an intermediate marathoner and your goal marathon pace is, say, 15 to 30 seconds faster than your easy pace. We're still running aerobically at this point. It, it, the mechanical stress of this kind of run isn't going to be high. So just also keep in mind that every workout doesn't necessarily mean it's a nine out of 10 on the effort scale. You could have relatively easy workouts, even in this three workout per week scheme. And that's just one way that we can manipulate the overall intensity and effort of the total workload is by having one of these workouts be kind of easy. Absolutely. Let's get to a question from Todd. Uh, he actually wants to know how important is pace during workouts. So his specific question is, you know, say I'm running for, you know, I'm training for a 3:30 marathon. Do I need to run intervals at a certain pace range or is it not really going to help me? Ooh, good question. So here's the thing, and this is why I always like to work backwards from what have you done in your recent training or racing history that indicates to you that this goal time is appropriate for where you currently are in your fitness? Because the number one mistake I see that runners make with using pace in their training is they set a goal that is beyond where they are currently capable of achieving in the training cycle and then set all their workout paces based on that goal. And then, of course, it, what ends up happening is they're struggling in workouts, they're struggling to hit those paces because those paces are not appropriate for them. There's nothing wrong with using paces in workouts, and we'll get to kind of the gradation of like effort over pace and pace ranges and all that kind of stuff. But first and foremost, the number one thing you have to make sure is if you're going to use pace in your training at all, you have to make sure that it's the right pace guide for you. So that's kind of like my first, like, I'm going to say like a red flag, but like an orange flag when somebody comes to me with a hyper-specific round number finish time goal, and I have to look, work backwards to their training and say, all right, is this even appropriate for you? Or is this something that you just really want to happen so badly that you are just going to put a whole bunch of paces into your training and like hope that it comes together on race day? Let's say that this is appropriate for Todd. Let's say that Todd's totally on the path to running a 330 marathon. He's like, yeah, nope, my training and racing history indicates all systems go. This is appropriate. Early on in a training cycle, one, your goal pace is not supposed to or going to feel awesome. Um, and in that case, it's really important to, especially with in ideal conditions, right? Irrespective of the fact that it could be 95 degrees outside, right? Um, 
that most importantly for a lot of these workouts, we want to use pace as a guide, but we really want to dial into what the effort feels like. Uh, Because what we're trying to do in training is to work the appropriate systems that are going to allow you to build the fitness that you want so that on race day it all comes together and allows you to run your goal pace. And you might say, well, how can I how can I not ever run my goal pace in training and yet I can run goal pace on race day? It's because pace is just an expression of how much output you are able to give. And what we're trying to do is train your body to produce the output that you're looking for. And in doing so, we might be training at slightly slower paces than you're going to run on race day, but the effort level, the system that we're targeting in that run is the correct one. So it's okay to be off. I would say if you're really struggling, if we're like 30, 60, 90 seconds per minute off, maybe take a step back and reevaluate. If that happens multiple times over the course of your training cycle, take a step back and reevaluate. But overall, use pace as your guide, but effort is really going to be what rules you in your workouts. Yeah, I think a good example of this is, say, your lactate threshold, where you know, regardless of the race that you're training for, whether it's a 5K or a marathon or anything in between, your lactate threshold effort or pace isn't really going to change based on what your goal is at the end of the training cycle. You know, your lactate threshold is based on your current fitness level and really what is happening internally in your body. So regardless of your goal time in the marathon, regardless if of whether you're training for a marathon or a 5K, your lactate threshold is going to be sort of what it's going to be on the day. And it can certainly be impacted by everything from the weather to your fatigue levels, your overall workload and how you're feeling. So when someone asks me if pace is important, my first answer is yes, of course. My second answer is, but it's not tied to your goal time. You know, I would love to pick out a sub four minute mile training plan and follow it and run a sub four minute mile. But I just have no business doing that training because I physiologically can't keep up with it. So, you know, I, like you said, Elizabeth, I I think we should work backwards. I think we should also have a healthy mix of what am I currently capable of versus aspirationally, what do I think I might be able to do with some training, with some extra fitness gains in three, four or five months? And then you can sort of split the difference a little bit. I think some of your workouts can have those, those aspirational paces, assuming they're realistic. You know, I'm not going to go from running a five minute mile to a four minute mile over the course of three months, but maybe I can improve by five to 10 seconds. And that might be a reasonable approach to take in some of my workouts. Uh, Let me ask you a little bit of a side question on this when it comes to pace and effort with certain workouts, because some workouts are very different than others. I just used the lactate threshold example. A lot of coaches will call this your tempo pace. You know, this is very much based on what's going on in your body. This is what I would call a physiological type of workout. Let's say we're doing a series of 200 meter repetitions at your mile race pace. That is not a physiological workout. That's really based on your mile race pace. How do you think about those two types of workouts where you have things like tempo or lactate threshold, or even say your easy pace, which is really an effort versus a more pace-based workout prescription? That's a great question. Yeah. Um, When you're doing shorter repetitions and, you know, 
200 meters, I think, definitely qualifies as a shorter repetition. There is a lot more of the neuromuscular and nervous system component that we're trying to work and a lot of the efficiency and economy that comes with training to run at that specific pace and what it takes to run fast and smooth. And one of the reasons that we do speed work like that is to help us run at the pace we're trying to run at on race day in smaller chunks and have it learn to, you know, be more manageable, right? Teach our body kind of how to relax and and run fast at this pace. And we break it up into intervals so we can do more work without accumulating as much fatigue as we would if we were running longer intervals. Now, of course, you can't run, you know, two miles at your mile race pace, nor can I run 10K at my 5K pace. So, you know, one of the functions of an interval workout is to be able to run larger volumes at goal pace or goal effort without accumulating the same amount of fatigue that you would if you were in a race environment. Um, and so again, it's a little, it's a little bit of both. You know, I always like to encourage my athletes to kind of understand where the, where they don't want to go, right? Like, you know, let's say we're doing 200 meter repeats at mile race pace. If you're, if you are like maxed out, if you are 10 out of 10 effort during that 200 meter repeat, that is not mile race pace, right? That is a, that is a high, that is somewhere we don't want to go. That is too far, right? But if we're just a little bit harder, if you're thinking in this workout, okay, I couldn't hold this for a mile right now, but I could hold this for 800 meters or, you know, 1200 meters or, you know, a little bit longer than the 200 meter repetition, and that kind of allows you to understand the fine tuning of what the paces are supposed to feel like. Um, and so helping people understand like, don't, it should never feel like an all out effort. Almost nothing you do in training should feel like an all out effort, but helping the athlete understand for this specific workout, where am I not supposed to go? And then help them work backwards from there, I think can be really helpful because almost every workout has a place where you're like, nope, that's too far. Now, Elizabeth, I want to quote you from our last podcast. You said something brilliant that I've been using as a coach. Uh, you talked about how as you become a more advanced runner, as you gain fitness and you start running more of these workouts, especially when the workouts become more complex and you're running all these paces like 800 meter race pace, mile pace, 3K pace, 5K pace. What you said was the more advanced you get, the more gears you will develop, sort of like a bicycle. When you start out as a new runner, you're like a two-speed bike. But as you get better and better, as you start improving and progressing, you'll eventually be, you know, a 16-speed bicycle and you'll have all these gears to play with. And I think this really fits into this discussion because what we're talking about now is pretty subtle. We are talking about these, these, some of these minute gears we have like 800 meter versus mile race pace. That is a difficult proposition right there to find, especially if you're a relatively new runner or you just don't have much experience racing some of these middle distances. So part of the art of running workouts is fine tuning your understanding of where all these gears are and being able to get into that gear, you know, being able to run mile pace versus 5k pace versus 10k pace versus threshold pace and really understanding not only how to execute that pace but what that pace feels like intuitively and it's just going to be more difficult the more of a newer runner you are you know the less experience you have and that's okay it just means this is low hanging fruit you're going to develop this over time and you're just going to gradually get more and more gears like you so eloquently put it as you become more advanced 
So anyway, I really loved that. Thank you for this wonderful analogy. Well, yes, no, I thank you. And I use that too. And and that's that's something that's kind of let's ultimate goal, right? And I think for when I'm when I'm working with runners, especially one-on-one, especially long term, is to help runners understand, to help them build their gears, right? And I think for many runners, they get frustrated that they don't have this experience, this skill set yet. Because there is there is no substitute. Like that's something that you genuinely just have to work through with the experience of training and racing over multiple cycles. Hopefully, you know we're not making too mis- too many mistakes along the way, but you will, right? One of the greatest way you find your limit is to reach it, right, in a workout and say, okay, I thought that I'd pace that correctly, but I did not. Uh, I definitely went out too fast, or whatever the thing was. Um, and and these these types of gradations that we're talking about between 800 meter and mile race pace, even between something you know as as subtle as 10k versus lactate threshold pace, for the vast majority of you know recreational runners, and I definitely count myself as a recreational runner, uh, that is not something that is intuitive, right? It's something that you have to practice, it's something you have to work at, it's something you have to pay attention to in your training because so much of training is learning to listen to your body and learning to listen to what things feel like and learning when you can push and when to back off. And this subtle, this experience and the subtle kind of intelligence that you gain through the hundreds of hours of the work that you're doing over the course of your years of running, that's how you get better at doing this. Yes, absolutely. Now, I know we've been talking a lot about faster workouts Let's take a step back and answer a question from Malcolm, who wants to know what workouts, if any, should you be doing during the base phase of training? So your base training, typically that is often not a period of time where you're doing any workouts, although I I do think workouts have a place. What what do you say to this? What what kind of workouts do you think are appropriate during base training? And uh, when should we run them? Uh, not necessarily like when during the week, but should they be an ever present training strategy throughout rate base training? Or like you mentioned earlier, should your workout sort of progress over base training? Great question. Um, and I think when people are in a base phase, their greatest fear is somehow losing fitness, even though that we know that the importance of aerobic base building and that having a strong aerobic base makes you a a better and faster endurance runner. But because people aren't running as fast as much in base building, they kind of freak out. I do feel that workouts are appropriate in base building as long as you are comfortable in the volume that you're currently running. So if you are struggling to, let's say the, the goal of your specific base building phase, your base training phase is to increase your volume and you're kind of finding it hard to comfortably increase your volume, even though you're spending almost you know 99% of your time doing easy effort running, are workouts appropriate for you? No. We cannot, we don't want to add intensity if you're already struggling to increase volume. Um, but I do find that in base building, I like to include things like strides and post-run hill sprints, which for me are more like drills rather than workouts, but also um, something like, you know, short hill repeats, right? 30 seconds, one minute, 90 seconds, hard uphill with jog return to start is a really, it's a pretty high intensity workout, but it's these tiny little packages that help with your power, your economy, your efficiency, and they're a truly polarized way to train. So polarized meaning a lot of really low intensity and some very high intensity that over the long run, no pun intended, I think will help a lot of runners enter into the next phase of their training with 
improved power, improved mechanics, right? You know, they've they've gotten some faster running in. Um, of course, you know, I, I'm very understanding that we're all human. We are all going to at some point, no matter what our training schedule says, go on what I like to call a, you know, an angry tempo <laughs> or a, a mental <laughs> health run, right? So I'm under no illusions that even if your training plan does say 100% easy running, that you're going to do 100% easy running. But in terms of those, those structured, those intentional days of harder or faster, to running. Yeah, I do think that there is a place in base building for them, but kind of the sprinkles on top of it, right? It's it's if you have a cake, it's the sprinkles, it's not the cake itself. Yeah, I really love that perspective on things because you know, I have a, a similar perspective in that I, I think workouts can be appropriate in base training, but not always. And, and I think you're absolutely right that if you're struggling with the mileage side of things, which really is predominantly the focus during base training, we probably shouldn't run any workouts because the goal is to increase our volume, to be consistent with our mileage, to grow our long run distance. So if we're struggling just with the volume aspects of things, we probably shouldn't do any intentional workouts. Um, I do think strides are so fundamental. They're like a drill. Uh, I don't think we should ever really get too far away from running fast and strides are like the perfect opportunity for that, whether you're doing uphill strides or hill sprints or more traditional strides, all three of those fall into the same bucket for me. And besides maybe the first couple weeks of base training, you know, you've taken a week off or two weeks off and you're going to have a couple weeks of just easy running to ramp back up into things. Maybe you have a week or two where you don't run strides the first week or two of the cycle. But pretty soon, we're going to get back into what I'll call a normal pattern of training. And that normal pattern does include strides probably twice a week, at least maybe three times. And I would like to see some kind of workout provided you're not struggling with the, the mileage levels. And so for me, the types of workouts that, that I really like to see fall on either end of the spectrum, but nothing really in the middle of this speed spectrum. So we're not doing any fast, longer repetitions. We might be doing some of those short, fast reps that you mentioned, Elizabeth. I love those. If you can do them uphill, you know, anywhere from 30 seconds to a minute and a half or so, either hill reps, 200 meter reps on a track, something like that to really focus on speed and power. I love that in base training. Let's just make sure our recovery is pretty full. And then the other side of things, you know, what I'll call easy tempo runs. Maybe you're running half marathon pace. Maybe you're doing some marathon pace workouts, just enough to sort of get your legs turning over. I know if, if any runner is like me, I start to get a little antsy if I'm not doing any faster running. I just want to get the legs turning over. I want to feel the wind through my non-existent hair. And if I can't, I start feeling a little anxious with my training. So that's when I'll do, you know, two times five minutes at an easy tempo effort. Something a little bit to rev the system a little bit, but not enough to, to really incur substantial fatigue. And this is where I love adding progression runs in too, if appropriate, into, into base training or base building. Um, you know, I, it's funny. I was chatting. I met up with one of my one-on-one athletes, Courtney, uh, over the summer. She was in town near where I live, and we ended up getting to run together. And we were chatting about running, you know, as one does with their athletes. Um, and, you know, as she was saying, that one of the things that she's really learned in her time being coached by me is basically, you know, where the trade-offs occur. 
right? So that one of the things that I really want my athletes to do is understand, okay, if I do this today, how might that impact what I'm doing tomorrow, right? And obviously asking, you know, texting me if they have questions, but I, the, we're not going to work together for the rest of our lives. And I want them to be able to have these tools that they use with them for the decades of running to come. So if you choose today to do a fast finish progression, or you choose to do a little bit of tempo work, you have to understand that there's a trade-off, right? So if you're choosing to do that today, it means you can't do that tomorrow, right? Or if you were going to also do something hard tomorrow, you can no longer do that. Or if you're doing something that requires more recovery, you then have to take more recovery, right? So, and I think this is where a lot of the a lot of the nuance gets lost on social media when coaches like you or I are are just trying to communicate like best practices to as many people as possible is that we're not saying never, ever, ever run faster than easy pace on easy days. We're saying that there are choices you can make. And if you choose a choice today, it's going to have an impact tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the day after that and seeing how it all fits together and understanding where am I ultimately trying to get to with this? That's what we're trying to teach people. And that's what we're trying to develop in our athletes, at least for me. That's what I'm trying to do. Well, this is the holy grail, right? I mean, this is this is like Neo seeing the matrix because you not only are looking at a training plan and seeing the workouts, you are seeing how a runner is feeling the day before, the day of, and the day after that workout. And it not only gives you an idea of how your training has to change after a hard workout or or anything that is more substantial, but also what you're going to have to do before that hard workout to adequately prepare yourself for it. And so being able to kind of like read between the lines and see the fluctuations in effort and energy that you're going to have to put out during a training cycle, I think is a superpower for runners. And it's one of the things that is hard to really learn, except with a lot of experience, a lot of trial and error, and a lot of just going through a training plan and seeing viscerally how that affects you, how you feel before, during, and after these workouts so that in the future, you know how to change your training ahead of a workout. You know how to change your training after a workout because that's really where that's really where the adaptation occurs, right? Like let's try to optimize our performance on a workout day and then properly recover from it and then just keep doing that over and over and over again so that over time you become a runner that you almost don't recognize. You're much faster, you're much stronger, and maybe more importantly, you're wiser and you understand these things better so that, like you said, over time, you can fire your coach and do this yourself. <laughs> I mean, really, that's, you know, th- at the end of the day, yes, and I, uh, coaches, obviously, like we we have an important role, I think, for a lot of runners. And I, I think Steve Magnus recently tweeted something to the effect of, you know, the more advanced and experienced the runner, the more a coach is important to keep them from doing really stupid stuff <laughs> in their training, right? Um, you know, we're, we're the guardrails, right? Even if you know all the things, we are the guardrails against you making really bad decisions, which, you know, we're all human. We all make bad decisions sometimes because we want the best out of our training. We want the best out of our racing. Um, but I think this is where a lot of runners get into trouble when it comes to workouts is they, they, they are tempted by doing too much, running too fast, running too hard, doing more reps than are called for, running the recovery too fast, not taking enough recovery between reps, um, you know, moving their workouts around in their training week because of their schedule. But oops, guess what? Now I have a track workout and a threshold run back to back. Um, you know, stuff like that, where it's, you know, these types of things are 
really easily learned and they can help you become a better runner if you can learn how to pull back just a little bit, to have that extra degree of, I'd say self-control, self-awareness about what am I doing? Is my ego driving this? Or is this something that's actually going to be beneficial for me? Or am I just running this workout at this pace because that pace makes my ego feel good? Or it just looks good on Strava. You know, you're going to get or those kudos. Or it just kudos, looks good on you know? Strava. Right. Well, this hints at my final question for you. But before we get to that, um, let's talk about one of the most common questions about workouts that that I usually get. This one's from Joey. How do you know when to increase the pacing on your workouts? You know, if you're training around a given pace for your threshold workouts, and then you improve, let's say, a 5K or a 10K race performance by 30 seconds, is it now time to update your threshold pace? Or should you just be more conservative and just keep all your training paces the same, even as you are getting faster in races and improving your capabilities on that front? How do you think about this? Good question. This is, I think this question is an example of when I see pace-based training fail. Because your paces are not and should not be the same every single day or throughout the training cycle or from cycle to cycle. We talked about targeting a specific system, being in a specific effort zone, using lactate threshold as the example, roughly that one hour race effort pace. Um, That one hour race effort pace is going to change depending on your level of fatigue and the weather and all these things, but it's also over time going to get faster. On what timeline and how much faster over a period of time, everybody's going to be different. But it's not inconceivable that over several years or even a couple cycles of really solid training that your paces are going to naturally increase. It's not something you should have to think about and put into a calculator and then like beep boop target this pace instead because the effort should always feel the same even if the pace changes over time because your one hour race effort never changes even if your one hour race pace does. And so this is this is kind of a big I would say like a philosophical problem I have with people who are heavily into pace-based coaching um, because I think that they're doing athletes a disservice by focusing so heavily on specific paces and not teaching them what the effort is supposed to feel like. Because if you are following an effort guided with kind of pace targeting uh, training system, you won't have to think about it because you won't be watching your watch. You won't be staring at your Garmin thinking, oh, should I, should I increase five seconds per mile? Should I increase 10 seconds per mile? You'll just be running your workouts and you'll look down and say, hey, I think I'm getting faster because that effort felt the same, but I was X seconds per mile faster than the last time I did that. So that's my position on that kind of, of thing. It's probably not what Joey wants to hear, but that is where I would come down on that answer. Let me ask you more specifically about some of those race-based paces that we use in workouts, like say, you know, your 5K pace and then your goal 5K pace. So let's say your 5K pace is 7.15 a mile. You'd love to be able to run a 5K at seven minutes per mile. I think that's a somewhat reasonable improvement for, for a beginner to intermediate level runner. How would you have them run 5K paces in in a workout if if they are all of a sudden 
okay, now I just ran a 5K at 7.10 pace. Now I just ran a 5K at 7.05 pace. Does this make the aspirational seven-minute mile race pace more appropriate during training? Should this runner still be running these 5K sessions by effort? Um, you know, and let me just say my bias as a, a former track athlete is that everything is measured. You know, I am looking at my watch every 100 meters during a track workout to make sure that I am dialed in to the pace that I need to hit. And often doing shorter repetitions, say 800 meters or less, when you're running 5K pace, two-mile race pace, mile pace, 800 pace, these are very specific paces. And, and I, on a track, especially in that kind of a precise environment, I don't really want to be relying on effort or feel because I care about the actual finish time. So how do you reconcile that? How do you think about that? Yeah. And so here's the thing. We talk about pacing as this skill, right? That it's this skill that's developed through experience. And I think for the vast majority of runners out there who are not coming from a, a heavily competitive, whatever that means for them, track-based background or didn't run in college, didn't run in school, most people do not have the skill set to pace themselves in five second per mile increments. <laughs> <laughs> that I'll be honest, right? So if I, you know, so when I give pace ranges, right, even for dealing with goal pace, and I'll say, all right, let's use this. Okay, you you have run, recently run a 5K at 710 pace, and you are trying to run a, a 5K at seven minute per mile pace. I know there's a difference, right? But for me, we could have that athlete go and run 400 meter repeats at 5K pace on the track. And I don't know that they'd be able to tell that much of a difference between 7, 705 and 710 pace, right? It's not 630 and 730 pace. Now, of course, as the athlete becomes more experienced and as we get faster and as we start to approach the kind of limit of our own specific fitness ability, right? Those things, those minute gradations do become very specific and very important. I know that elite runners, without even thinking about it, know intuitively if they're two to three seconds per mile off of what their goal pace is, right? But that's not the majority of us. I think kind of to, to answer this question is say, I still do think that having that pace target with the efforts to feeling appropriate, like that would be my goal. But like, here's your pace range. Go see how it feels, right? <laughs> like, fine, go run some rest. Start at 7, 10 pace, even work down to seven minutes per mile by the end of the workout and see how it feels. You know, would you be able to run one more at seven minute per mile pace? Or have you redlined? Have you, have you totally gassed yourself out? So kind of understanding, you know, how those different paces feel. Because the other, the flip side of this pace versus effort thing is that although... I think often athletes look to specific paces as like aspirational pacing. So I I've found in my practice as a coach and in my personal experience as a runner that often when we're hyper-focused on specific paces, we're actually holding ourselves back. And if I am so hyper-focused in the situation on hitting seven minutes per mile pace, I might actually be able to capable of running 650, but I am so focused and intimidated and like obsessed with that set, that seven minute per mile pace in this example, that I'm not allowing myself to run 
the true effort, what I could be capable of running, which is even faster than that. So this is where, this is where I really do like that confluence of pace and effort. I don't think we should put all of our eggs in either basket. It should be something that we use. And I, I use this as kind of like, and with heart rate or power too, we're kind of triangulating, finding this Venn diagram, if you will, of where the overlap is and how to use all the information available to us, pace, effort, heart rate, power, et cetera, et cetera, to figure out, you know, the where we're actually, what's appropriate for us on the day, in the workout, in the race, et cetera. I think I'm asking a lot of these questions because I am more of a pace-oriented coach, uh, probably because of my track background. So I, I just love understanding this a little bit more. Um, would you say that using a pace range solves some of this problem because I completely agree with you that having a, a very specific pace target either for a race or a workout can be problematic because you get so obsessed with that pace. I, I tend to like to use ranges, which include some as you know, the faster end is more aspirational. The slower end is maybe where you're currently at right now. And even though I may tell a runner, this is your pace range, I will also say, we have flexibility here. I want this to feel like ABC or XYZ, you know, give them a, a rating of perceived effort or subjective feeling, because ultimately I want them to, to marry the two. I want them to understand what it feels like subjectively, which might be the effort. But then I also want them to, to really dial into the actual pace, especially if they're a shorter distance oriented athlete. So I guess that's just the way that I think about it. And, and I'm wondering how you maybe use ranges to, to help solve this problem. Yeah. Ranges are key. When I do prescribe paces in training with my athletes, my one-on-one athletes, it is in ranges. Um, and of course it always depends, right? I have worked with athletes like, yeah, if we're training for a very specific 5k goal and I know them really well, but like go to the track and this is your pace, <laughs> like go run this, you know? Um, but especially for, for longer stuff. Yeah. That range is key because it's, it's not realistic to think that we are metronomes in training or in racing, right? It's all of us have been in a race and understand that even in the shortest races, our pace will fluctuate ever so slightly, even when we are right on the money. And like I said about, you know, most runners, um, the majority of runners, I think in the world who are doing this for fun, you know, we don't have the experience of going to the track and running 463 exactly, right? You know, we're not that precise. But so yeah, so for this, this, like in this example, this 5k example, you know, seven is your goal pace and you've run 715 and then 710, I would say even 655 to 705, you know, and I think we talked about on the guest that you were um, uh, on my podcast about using the track as an endurance athlete, talking about trying to negative split your workout, which means that if you're doing, you know, intervals, you want to start ever so slightly slower than what your goal pace is, and then see if you can work down into a faster pace range. And ideally, have your last rep be the fastest of all, not because you sandbagged, but because you have appropriately worked down into that pace and effort range for your last few reps. So that would be a good example, I think, for this specific uh, athlete, right? Yeah, go go run some seven minute per mile repeats in, on the track or on in your neighborhood and see how it feels, see what 655 feels like, see what 650 feels like, right? Um, and kind of understand, because here's the thing, thinking about that pace versus effort thing is I think there are 
especially when you are runners are so focused on those longer distances, right? And five K is technically a long distance race. We are so unaccustomed to finding that next gear, right? To go back to the bike analogy, to finding the next gear, to find that next level that we kind of automatically assume rightly or wrongly in our minds that we all kind of have this pace of like, well, I can't really run faster than this pace because if I do something bad might happen or I might blow up because I blew up that one time that I ran faster than this pace. But that might not be true anymore. And with time, you might realize that, hey, I actually do have a gear above the gear that I thought was the top of my gears. I can run a little bit faster. I can squeeze down a little bit more and not die. And so exploring that, I think, is also key to developing your ability to pace yourself and race effectively. Yeah, I think it's funny, too, that as I'm thinking about this, I just I just remember so many of my athletes emailing me their workout splits which are not where they should be. And I just don't really care. It's okay. Like, (laughs) so even though I'm using pace as a proxy for a certain level of performance that I'm expecting an athlete to perform at in a workout, there's always flexibility and things change day to day, your sleep, your fatigue levels, your stress levels. And so we do have to work within our biological system. And like you said, we're not a metronome. We are not a robot. Sometimes those paces aren't going to be possible because of the weather, because of what's going on with our body. And so when I see workout paces that are a little bit slower or even a little bit faster than what I've programmed, I understand the complexity of it all. And so it doesn't bother me at all. And I think For a type A runner, that might be a little bit surprising to know that, hey, I don't actually have to hit these splits exactly for me to be progressing in the direction that I want to be going. It can actually be a huge weight off their shoulders and and a nice way to de-stress their training a little bit. Um, Elizabeth, I want to ask you a little bit about more types of workouts and, and, and combinations of workouts. So I had an interesting question, uh, this one from Malcolm as well. He's curious about doing two tempo runs per week rather than, say, a tempo plus a more VO2 max-oriented workout. No doubt this question probably came up because of, you know, a lot of the the press that the threshold training from uh, the Norwegians is getting right now. So I'm just curious, like, should runners just be doing two threshold workouts a week? Should we be doing a threshold and a VO2 max? Are there other combinations that would work better? How does this fit into the grand scheme of things? Yeah. Yeah. What are you training for? Because that's going to drive how your training is structured, right? If you're training for a mile race and your only workouts are tempo, and first of all, sidebar, I hate the, I hate tempo. Tempo is for me a catch-all phrase for anything that's moderate. So when I talk about moderate, you know, I like to be really specific and like, are you talking about marathon effort, half marathon effort? Are you talking about literally lactate threshold, that one hour race space, the top of that physiological zone, right? So for me, it's like tempo could be anything from somebody's marathon pace to maybe even their 10K pace. Um, you know, so if you're training for a mile race, sh- double, double threshold or double tempo a week, like you'd probably, I mean, yeah, you'd probably want some threshold in there, but that shouldn't be the only type of workout that you're doing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's very cool to see the Norwegian method and what the Ingebrigtsens are doing. Threshold is a staple of the training that I believe in. I think that lactate threshold training is 
and I the studies have backed this up, right? That having a high lactate threshold predicts endurance performance better than VO2 max does. So if you have a really strong lactate threshold, right, you're going to be better off in your training and racing, along with all your other easy effort running and all the other stuff that we're doing in your training. Um, so it depends on what you're training for. Like all of our training, it's also going to depend on what your strengths and weaknesses are, right? Um, something I like to do when I talk to new athletes is, you know, I, I like to ask them the workouts that they typically like and dislike. Because more often than not, the, the workouts that an athlete dislikes are ones that they haven't been doing or tend to skip or modify or slag off, which means that they're not getting the benefits of that type of workout, even if the those types of workouts are going to be really important to developing where they want to get to as an athlete. So the short answer of this is, um, I honestly, depending on the training that you're doing, yeah, you totally might have two workouts in your moderate effort zone above your aerobic threshold and at or below your lactate threshold, especially if you're doing something like half marathon training, or maybe you're doing, you know, in half marathon training, you have some half marathon pace repeats and you have some lactate threshold work or marathon training, you have marathon pace work and you have lactate threshold in your training. That's two tempo, quote unquote, tempo sessions per week. Totally appropriate. Um, but you don't want to do that at the expense of something that's going to be also more beneficial to you. So I think traditionally we talk about, you know, the way that workout weeks are structured. Track Tuesday, Tempo Thursday, right? Is that, yeah, when we're talking about a specific periodization of your training, we want to kind of make sure we're hitting all systems a little bit kind of all the time. Um and so what this typically looks like is you do have a faster VO2 max session in conjunction with a threshold session. And then maybe if you are in that vaunted third workout world, maybe you have another session or maybe you have a long one workout too. So um, there are absolutely going to be times when this is appropriate. I will caution you though, don't do those twice in one day, right? So I think the double threshold train that we're seeing the Norwegians do, they're literally doing two threshold workouts, one in the morning and one in the evening on the same day. I don't know anybody personally who is able to handle that kind of training in their training week unless they are a very talented, extremely high-level athlete. And even then, I would caution great restraint in understanding if that might be too much for you. That's a very long-winded answer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I agree with you 100%. Uh, the only the only other context that I might add is let's remember that every training plan, every cycle that you're in progresses. You might start in the base phase, you might end in the competition phase of training, and then finally you have your goal race. So when we say maybe two tempo-oriented workouts are appropriate during a week, we don't necessarily mean for the entire training cycle. Of course, every week is going to look a little bit different. Everything is going to progress. The plan should be periodized. So what you do one week, especially if it's week two, is probably going to look very different than what you do in week 10 versus week 15. So let's just remember that any answer that either one of us give right now about what is appropriate in a week is really just a one-week example within a three- to five-month training plan. And that same training plan might have three workouts in a week that are all very different. It might have zero workouts at the very beginning of the training plan. So all, all of those answers are appropriate. It all just depends on where you are 
within the training cycle and sort of you know what what essentially you're training for so if you're training for a mile your workouts probably not going to be doing two tempo runs a week if you're training for a marathon that all of a sudden becomes a lot more appropriate so it certainly depends on the race you're training for also i think even more depends on where you are within the cycle and i'll even say it kind of broadly one of the things that I, I, I see a big, a really big mistake that runners who write their own training without kind of understanding the fundamentals of training um, in general is that let's say you are somebody who has two workouts in a week. Those workouts should not be the same workout, right? You shouldn't be doing, you know, three by 10 minutes at threshold on Tuesdays and Thursdays, <laughs> even if you do have two tempo sessions, right? Moderate intensity sessions per week. Um, so that's something that I think just kind of to note here is that even when you do have multiple workouts in a week, even if they're technically targeting the same general system, they aren't going to be the exact same workout that you are just doing twice in one week. That's a good point. You might do something where you might do 20 minutes at half marathon pace on Tuesday, and then on Thursday, you're running three times five minutes at lactate threshold. Similar workouts, but not exactly the same. One's a little slower, one's a little faster, one's a continuous effort, one's broken up into segments, and they are going to stress the body in different ways. So let's have a little bit of variety within our workouts. I think uh, that is also just a very high-level philosophical underpinning of, of my coaching philosophy is that let's just run a variety of paces and workouts and in different types of effort throughout the week so that we're just getting a different stress and training our bodies in different ways so that we're not getting too stale. Um, let's talk about some specific workouts. Mary had a question because she is getting ready for a hilly race and she wants to know what kind of workouts are best for preparing for a hilly race besides the obvious of, you know, just running a lot of hills during an easy run. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean you have to be running hills just like in general. Um, I also, uh, what race distance did she say? Well, we don't know. We so don't know. we're adding okay. a, a fun wrinkle into this question without that knowledge. I don't know too many people who intentionally train for super hilly 5k. So I'm going to assume this is something a longer distance race, like a half marathon or a marathon. I could be wrong, but that's the assumption when to go off. Um, so one, if important to keep in mind, because we mentioned towards the beginning of this episode, is that if you are just building up the volume to finish the race or in a lower volume training plan, the hills, adding hills to the easy running that you're doing will probably be enough of a training stimulus. If you don't have any workouts in your training plan, the hills themselves are workouts. They call, you know, hills or speed work in disguise, right? It takes more effort to run up a hill than it does to run on a flat surface or run down a hill. Um, but when we are getting more technical and more advanced, the most important thing you can do is understand the specific profile of the race that you are running, right? What kind of hills are you expected to run? Are they long, gradual inclines or are they short, sharp, really steep hills? And mirror your training as closely to that as possible. Um, the other thing too is that understanding that uh, race pace feels very different uphill, downhill versus on flat. So if you, when you have race pace or race effort workouts in your training, that you are including some of those workouts on hilly routes as well and understanding how much do I need to adjust to go up the hill? How much can I increase when I'm going down the hill? What does it feel like to run race pace on tired legs at the end of a hilly run? Um, as well as including things like, and I know Jason, you're a huge proponent of this strength training, 
to support what you need to do on race day, both, you know, eccentric and regular strength training for your uphills and your downhills. Um, Aside from that, of course, hill specific workouts, like I'm not saying that we all need to go do uphill mile repeats. I think that's bonkers, but doing things like hill sprints or hill strides or, you know, VO2 max hill reps, something where you're getting a specific intentional hard uphill stimulus um, to, again, work on that power, that economy, that efficiency, that all kind of comes together. And what we're trying to do is put all the pieces together so that on race day, the puzzle is complete, right? You have all the tools that you've needed in training uh, to execute what you're trying to execute on race day. So Elizabeth, I admittedly struggle with this question because I could probably answer it effectively in three different ways. I could say, I could go a step further than, you know, your hypothetical runner who just wants to finish a half marathon. I could say, you don't have to do any hills at all. You could do all of your training on the flattest terrain in Kansas and then go run a hilly half marathon and you'll be able to finish it as long as your training on flat ground was appropriate. I think hills get more important when you have more performance-oriented goals. If you want to actually run well on a hilly course, now we need to sort of prepare your body specifically for that demand. So I, on the one hand, I could say you don't need hills at all. But on the other hand, I could say, well, uh, we need to do some specific hill preparation. This is where I love your comment on studying the actual elevation profile of the course so that you're preparing in a specific way. You know, a lot of short, steep hills in, you know, a shorter race are going to require more power. So you might want to do some of those one to 90 second, uh, one minute to 90 second hill repetitions at a fast, hard effort so that you're capable of producing that power. And you know what that feels like, that that really intense, you know, VO2 max oriented type of feeling. Um, then I would also say that, look, you know, studies have shown that the best hill runners are simply the runners in better shape. So you can simply develop the aerobic system with a lot of volume, a lot of lactate threshold work, some really great long runs, and you're going to be quite capable on those hills just because you have a very developed aerobic metabolism. And, you know, if you're, especially if you're running, say, a marathon on hilly terrain, do you really need to be producing a ton of power to get up over, say, even, you know, the, the Newton Hills or Heartbreak Hill at Boston? I think a lot of runners are surprised that these aren't monster hills. They just happen to come at miles, you know, 19, 20, 21 in the course when you're really fatigued. So, the importance of hill workouts might actually be less than developing your endurance over time and just getting in as best shape as possible. So yeah, I struggle with this because, you know, all of those answers are correct, but they're all completely different answers. <laughs> yeah. And I completely agree with that too. Yeah. Because it, here's the thing. I think a lot of people think of, you know, if your goal is to finish a race, let's, and we'll use the New York city marathon as an example, right? So, you know, Every trail runner out there will tell you that the New York City Marathon is flat. Well, it's not. It's got some it's got some hills, right? If your goal is to finish this race or any other race that has hills and you have absolutely zero care in the world about what your finish time is and you are okay walking or slowing down as much as you need to, doesn't matter what your training really consists of as long as you're training properly. It's when people have these performance-oriented goals, even if the performance-oriented goal is to finish in under X time, um, that this type of training becomes 
more important, but I will say it is very possible to overdo the hills. I think sometimes that when we get so focused on training for hilly races, we then make all of our training into hilly training and you don't need that. It's it is good to get some stimulus on flat ground, to have runs where you're not, you know, needing to walk every third hill because it's hot and you're tired, where you are just able to kind of cruise um, and just kind of be in the effort zone you're supposed to be in. And so even when you are including workouts that have hills in them, I still don't think that every workout should have hills, even if your race is hilly. Um, and it, it all, it all kind of fits together. And people always ask me like, well, you know, what, you know, should I, should I program my specific treadmill through the thing and the hill gradient? And I'm like, do you have hills in your neighborhood? They're like, yeah, I have some hills. I'm like, cool. Just go run those hills. Just go run the hills you have available to you. Right. Um, it, it doesn't have to be, well, here's the thing. You can make it as complicated as you want to make it, but it doesn't have to be overly complex. And just because it is complex doesn't necessarily mean that it's more effective. Yes. This actually ties in with, you know, that last question that I have for you that that I teased earlier in our conversation, you know, and you mentioned how it's easy to overdo hills. You don't have to get so specific with your, your hill workouts. I tend to think that's true for almost all of your workouts. You don't have to make it as specific as you maybe think you need to make it for the race, because a lot of what we're doing is simply physical development, not necessarily specific training, especially if you're a beginner or even an intermediate runner, a lot of what we're doing is simply development. And so I have this unpopular opinion that even though workouts are what runners obsess over, they're what we love to talk about. It's what looks good on Strava. It's, it's arguably the most complex part of runners training, but they're not actually the most important thing that runners have to worry about. I think that your overall mileage, whether you're talking about that from a weekly or a monthly perspective, I think the general consistency and distance of your weekly long run and a third bucket that I'll sort of call extras, things like strides, strength training, a dynamic warmup. I think those three things are actually more important than workouts for 90% of, of runners in my view. If you can get good mileage with a good long run, you're doing some strength training and strides, that to me is getting 90% of the way there. And you could almost be doing poor workouts, but you're gonna get a lot farther than someone who's doing great workouts but your mileage is way too low. You're not doing a long run. You're not doing any strides or strength training. Your, your training might get cut short because you're going to get injured because of that. I'm just wondering if, if you agree with that. I understand it might be an unpopular view or, or what your thoughts are on that. Consistency is more important than anything else. And whatever allows you to be as consistent as possible is going to be what allows you to get to where you're trying to go. Now, of with everything, right? Every single thing we've talked about today has been like, and you know, there's always kind of like a, I want to say like a hot, like an exception, but kind of like the, but on the higher level, right? Like, yeah, if you're really trying to run a sub three marathon or an OTQ time or whatever it is, like you're probably going to have to be a little bit more intentional, right? Going back to that word intentional about the things that you're doing. But even then, even then, like 95% of where your success is going to come from, whatever that's whatever success looks like for an individual runner, is going to come from your ability to be consistent over years of training. Um, 
And yeah, it's so funny you were saying, you know, back to your athletes sending you their their splits. And you know, when I when I review my athletes training and they're like, yeah, this this that and this split and this was a little I was like, this looks fine. Like you were you did a great job. Like, you know, I think that sometimes athletes look to us coaches as like we have the magic formula. We're like going to plug their numbers into this magic formula and like spit out all the answers and like for me, what I'm really trying to do is develop runners who are happy and healthy and enjoying what they're doing. And for everybody, enjoyment looks a little bit different. I do have runners who really love the workouts. And I have runners who we have to coax into doing a little bit of faster running because it will be good for you, I promise. Um, but yeah, I think that the reason that we tend to focus on workouts is because they are sexy and fancy and we can look at them concretely and say, look at the numbers that I just did. We can't look at, you know, the accumulation of seven months of focusing on strength training and nutrition and tons of easy miles and be like, look at this, look at what I've done, you know? So I think that just, you know, we're human and we like to focus on things that are novel or impressive or are right in front of our faces. And we tend to discount the most important thing, which is that that really, well, and I'm talking, you know, people are like, how many weeks? I'm like, no, no, no. You mean months to years, right? Not days, weeks, months. It's months, years, decades. That's what you're trying to do when you're running is to get to a place where you can say, over the decades of consistent training that I've been doing, blah, 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 right? That's what we're trying to get to. Yes. And I do think that most runners tend to get hurt from intensity rather than running higher volume. A lot of the times it's because they're running higher mileage levels at a pace that's not appropriate for them. So I think if if we're going to be more conservative with any aspect of our training, I would rather be more conservative with the harder workouts that we're doing because that might, stands to reason, have a greater effect on our longevity in the sport and our consistency. That's ultimately going to mean we're going to get injured less frequently. We're going to be able to train more consistently. And, and I think the psychological benefit of that should not be discounted. We're not going to be depressed because we're injured. We are not going to feel bad because we have to miss that goal race, or we can't go on that really fun long run on the trails with our friends. So really optimizing for staying healthy and consistency seems to be, to me, a huge performance improvement uh, aspect of our training because it just has so many downstream positive effects. I don't think, I mean, and I'll, I'll bang this drum until I'm, I'm done with this world. Most people don't have any idea that they're running their easy runs too fast. And I can't tell you the number of runners, and I'm sure you've had the same experience, who have said to you, you know, I can't run more than three days a week or I get injured, or I can't run more than four days a week or I get injured. I can't run more than 25 miles a week or I get injured. And then we look at their training and it's like, you're literally doing everything in a moderate to high intensity zone. And when we slow all of that down, they're running five days a week and they're feeling good. They're running 30, 40 miles per week and they're feeling good. You know, so these, these, and of course there could be other issues going on, right? Nutrition, nutrient deficiencies, maybe we're not eating enough, maybe you have low iron, like it could be, you know, you're not strength training enough. There are other factors. I'm not saying it's just training intensity distribution, but that is a huge, huge impediment I see to runners not being able to train the way they want to or have been told that they should be training if that's the kind of training that they want to do. If you're the kind of person who says, I have no desire to run more than three days per week, no matter what else is going on in my life, awesome. 
this is not for you, right? It's for people who want to run more than this, who want to increase their volume and feel like they can't, they're running into this roadblock, this injury, or they're feeling exhausted all the time. You're probably running too hard. Elizabeth, I I thought this podcast was going to be a little bit more tactical, but it ended up being a little bit more philosophical. And I love that. Thank you for this. Uh, I always love picking your brain about different running topics and, and hearing your thought process because I think it's it's really effective for runners. And, and if we were to plan better workouts, have a better philosophy around workouts as we head into a season, we're ultimately going to be better runners. So this was really helpful for me, but hopefully more importantly, um, more helpful for our listeners as well. So Elizabeth, thank you so much. Um, you know, now's your time for the plug. Uh, Running Explained, one of the top podcasts out there, one of my favorites. Where else can people find you? Yeah, thank you for having me. It's always fun chatting. Um, Yeah, it's funny. I I was thinking like, yeah, we'll talk about like, you know, rest versus work interval ratios. And we'll talk about and, you know, because that that almost is like that stuff's easy, right? You and I can program workouts all day long, but it's getting people to buy into the fact they don't have to kill themselves in every workout, that they don't have to be running hard five days a week, right? Um, To learn the difference between, you know, easy to moderate to hard running, all of that. Yeah, this is, there's, there's always more to talk about when it comes to running. Uh, but if you do want to learn more, I am at Running Explained on Instagram. I have the Running Explained podcast, tons of services to offer. If anybody's looking for plans, coaching, education, all of that is available. You should come and check me out. Thank you, Elizabeth. This has been wonderful. That's our show, my friends. If you're not yet, make sure you follow the show and subscribe so you're alerted to every new episode. Now, I know workouts are arguably the most complex part of designing your training, so if you'd like me to help you with a training plan, just go to strengthrunning.com slash coaching. And a big thanks to you for supporting our sponsors, the companies who make it possible for me to devote so much time to this show. First, why don't you hook yourself up with some free electrolytes? Our sponsor, LMNT, is offering a free gift with your purchase at drinklmnt.com slash strength running. And this does not have to be your first purchase. You're going to get a sample pack with every flavor so you can try them all before deciding what you like best. Personally, watermelon is my current favorite, although citrus is is always right up there. I pretty much go back and forth between watermelon and citrus. I find that the watermelon has not quite of a stronger flavor, so it does taste a little saltier. And then the citrus has a stronger flavor. So the flavor overpowers some of the salt. So depending on what I'm looking for, I can choose either citrus or salt. They both taste amazing. Now drink LMNT makes electrolytes for athletes and low carb folks with no sugar, no artificial ingredients or artificial colors. I'm now in the habit of giving away boxes of element at group runs around Denver and Boulder. And everyone loves this stuff can also be a helpful way to prevent dehydration when you're doing your long run. If you sometimes feel overly tired afterward, or you get headaches, cramps, or sleeplessness, you might have an electrolyte balance or a deficiency that Element could help with. Boost your performance and your recovery, especially in the heat, with Element. They're the exclusive hydration partner to Team USA Weightlifting, and quite a few professional baseball, hockey, and basketball teams are on regular subscriptions. Plus, I admittedly like to have some element if I've had a few adult beverages the night before and I want my morning to feel a little smoother. 
Check them out at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. You'll get your free sample pack with your purchase, and then you can get on the way to optimizing your hydration for this summer season. I'm also grateful for the support of AG1, the health and wellness company that makes my favorite greens superfood mix. I'm a man of convenience, and comprehensive daily nutrition is important to me, but very difficult to attain, and that's why I love AG1. I personally struggle with eating really healthy. What can I say? Convenience foods are my jam. So I'm finding AG1 really helpful to fill in all the holes in my diet because there are quite a few holes. One scoop of this stuff gives me 75 vitamins and minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, including a green superfood blend, probiotics, prebiotics, adaptogens, and more. AG1 helps me fill in all the gaps in my diet and gives me a nice boost of energy and focus throughout the day. And I've got three kids that are just about to start school, and I know I've got to support my immune system because I am no match for all the germs that they're going to bring home. But what is really unique about AG1 and that I personally love is that the formula changes. Over the last decade, they've made over 50 different improvements to the AG1 formula based on the latest research to make all those nutrients more absorbable and more rigorous with the third-party testing that they do. AG1 is certified safe for sport. Go to drinkag1.com Jason to see the great offer they've put together for podcast listeners. You're going to get a year's worth of free vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. You can sign up for a single shipment or for a monthly drop if you want to make AG1 a part of your regular healthy lifestyle like I do. This is my daily go-to, and I certainly don't travel without it, especially if I know I'm not going to be sleeping as well as I do at home. I want to make sure my body has what it needs to operate well, and AG1 delivers. Go to drinkag1.com Jason to sign up today. All right, that's our show, runners. Thank you so much for being here, for subscribing to the show, for sharing it, using our sponsor links and codes, reviewing the podcast, or getting a training program for yourself at strengthrunning.com. Your support makes this show sustainable. And my number one goal is to elevate your running. So don't ever hesitate to reach out to me through the Strength Running website, or you can message me on Instagram. I'm at Jason Fitz One. Until next time. <laughs>